you have your Bible, take and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 20. We are studying together the life of Abraham. We took several weeks off during the Christmas season, but we're back to study this marvelous life of Abraham because he is called in the Bible, your father in the faith. Get to know him. Because his life demonstrates the experiences, the fundamental truths of what it means to live the Christian life. And as we continue, Abraham is now 100 years old, and his wife Sarah is 90. Okay? They were finally given clearly the promise that the son will be born unto them. But that was overshadowed by the judgment that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, clearly rattled, he moves away from that place down to the Negev. And this is what happens in chapter 20. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while, he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now, Abimelech had not gone near her. So he said, Lord, Will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, There is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides... She really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, This is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. 
to Sarah, he said, I am giving your brother, (laughs) wink, wink, a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female slave, so they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. So far, the reading of God's word. Roz, if you would bring that up for me. Why is this passage here, this strange story at this place in Genesis? Hearing the echo a little bit of something we studied back in chapter 12, when an earlier time Abraham tried to protect himself to give away his wife. Jane Colombo said to me before the service, Gil tried to do that long ago, but nobody would take me. We don't believe that for a moment, Jane. Why is this passage here at this place in the book of Genesis? Well, you know, Scripture is given to us, and it teaches us many things on different levels. There are different levels of Scripture. And, and um, for the first time ever in my many studies through this passage, I studied some of the old Hebrew scholars And uh, Robert Alter cites this uh, guy who lived in the year 1200. And he said, one of the reasons that this text is in this place, very frankly, is to prove that Abraham is the father of the soon-to-come child of the promise, Isaac. And he points out something very interesting as he goes along. He says, look, right now you have all these women who are not conceiving, and Maimedes is his name, and he says, they always blame the women. But he says, I'm not so sure at this point the problem was with the women. He said, just before this, of course, is the episode with Lot and his daughters, and his daughters cry out, there are no men. And they get their father drunk, and they have this incestuous relationship in order to bear two sons, Ammon and Moab, who you remember who they become two horrible nations that oppose God's people because there were no men. And then you had before that the destruction of the sinful men and the people in in, in Sodom and Gomorrah. And then before that, you have this strange promise to Abraham. You, you, old man, are going to have a son. And Maimedes said in the year 1200, he said, at least one thing I suspect is that when God said in verse 7, for I have kept you from touching her, he says, I think God put a plague of impotence upon the men of Abimelech's kingdom. Even though it says the women didn't, con- didn't conceive, because <laughs> you always blame the women, but he says, since God says, I have kept you from touching her, that he must have really done something nasty to the men of that time and that place. Why? In order to prove 
that when that child, Isaac, is finally conceived, nobody could say, well, Abimelech must be the father. I think that makes a lot of sense. But you know, for hundreds of years, Jewish and Christian preachers have also said that this text is to show us how unbelievers can sometimes be so good and believers can often be so bad. And that this, this is a very important text for the church. Because much of the context here, the Sodom and Gomorrah story, certainly the story with Lot, shows how sin really messes up people's lives. And Abraham here also really messes things up again, repeating his sin. So the question is before us, how can unbelievers be sometimes so good and believers often so bad? You see, who's the good guy in this story? Not Abraham. Your father, the father of the faithful. It's not Abraham. He's not the good guy here. It's the Canaanite king, Abimelech, who is decent and straightforward and generous and honest. Abraham was indifferent to the honor of his wife once again. Abimelech is more concerned about Sarah's reputation than Abraham is. Abraham doesn't worry about the descendants. He loses her. He loses the descendants and all of the promises. No no son of the promise, no salvation, no Jesus Christ in the world. Abimelech is very concerned about his people. He's an honorable leader of his people. Abraham has heard the words and the promises of God. He's ignoring them. When Abimelech hears the word of the Lord, what does it say happened early the next morning? Early the next morning, Abimelech rouses everybody and says, let's, have, let's get together. We've got to talk. Something terrible has happened. Why is the believer in this story the bad guy and the unbeliever the good guy? And more to our world, why is this so often the case even in the church today? Now, I know there are a great many Christian people, and here in this room, people who, whose lives I so respect, you adorn the gospel. That's the old Puritan way of saying you live for Christ. You adorn the gospel of grace in such beautiful ways in your life. And I, and I love this about our church. So many people striving, loving the Lord um, in beautiful ways. But we have to admit, and I've said this before from the pulpit, that very often the greatest argument against Christianity is Christians. And we sometimes we will encounter Christians who are mean, dishonest, who are uh, impatient, and even sometimes unkind and stingy. We scratch our heads because we see our non-Christian neighbors and sometimes they are just so nice and straightforward and honest and decent. How do we square this? Well, God gave us this passage in part to help us learn a little bit more how to think about this. 
Oh, I know. You know, when you are born again, with one stroke of God's grace, you are justified and all your sins are forgiven. That's good theology. That's what we're taught. We are justified in Christ. And maybe if you're like me, you scratch your head and you say, but then why doesn't he do the sanctification immediately? Why doesn't he just catapult me forward in holiness? You know, wouldn't it just be wonderful if all of you were so in love with the Lord that whenever temptation came your way, you just let it slide right past you. And all of your neighbors said, now that is a man of virtue. That is a woman of honor. Oh, I want to be like her to know her God, to know his God. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't it just be so splendid if every Christian wife was overflowing with honor and devotion and respect for her husband. And wouldn't it just be marvelous if every Christian husband was so noble and sacrificial and self-forgetting that he loved his wife even more than he loved his own body? Wouldn't that be wonderful if every Christian faced sickness and death without complaining, without worry, with a holy boldness and certainty? Wouldn't that be wonderful? But that's not how it is. Sometimes these things become stumbling blocks. and It's hard to believe that decent unbelievers like Abimelech are still outside the covenant of grace and do not know, do not know the salvation of God. And cowardly, shameful believers like Abraham are, are blessed with eternal life. Am I overstating it? It's right here in the text. So, we have these two questions. Here's the first question. Why are unbelievers often so good? Here is the short answer. And it is important for you to learn this uh, important theological term called common grace. Common grace. What is common grace? Common grace, when we speak of it, is the grace that God shows to all mankind, to humanity in common, in distinction from those who receive special grace or saving grace. And Jesus, Jesus is the primary teacher that there is such a thing as common grace or common kindness of God to all. What did Jesus say that God gives to all people without distinction? What did he say? He said God gives them good gifts. First thing you know about common grace is that all God's good gifts to the, go to the just and the unjust that sustain and enhance life in this world. He says, for it rains on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on the just and the unjust. Let me ask you this. Does the rain water the crops of only the Christian farmer? No, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Who gets food and health? And who gets marriage and children? Who gets musical talents? Only Christians? Do you have to be a Christian in order to be able to dunk a basketball and earn, uh, you know, $10 million a year? No. God bestows in his own mysterious providence his kindness, his blessings, his common grace blessings. In the, across the world. 
Uh, you see it right here in the text. Abimelech is a Canaanite king, a pagan, but he has wealth and family and administrative skills, leadership qualities. That's common grace. The second thing, when we think about common grace, and we see this, this is important for you to understand, is that common grace is the restraint of sin in people and in society. Yes, God actually restrains sin in non-Christian people. Uh, the Bible says in Jeremiah 17:9 that the human heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, right? You know that verse? Sometimes the depravity of man is revealed in ways that shock us. We see these suicide murderers in, in, in the Middle East, right? You know, the people who blow themselves up in order to murder innocent other, peop other people who are, you know, innocent. And that, that is depravity. It just, it's worst. But, but non-Christian people are not always as bad as they could be. Why is that? The Bible says that there is restraint. And God restrains sin. Abimelech said to God, don't kill me. I didn't know Sarah was his wife, and I didn't touch her. And God says, I know. I kept you from sinning against me. See, this is common grace here. God is saying, I kept you from sinning. And so, when non-Christian people are restrained in their sin, we, we learn from this text that God Almighty, in His wise providence, is keeping them, is restraining them. How does he do it? He usually restrains sin through the human conscience. All people have a conscience. They are, the conscience is seared, but all people have a sense of right and wrong at some level. The two-year-old, if you take something and rip it away from a two-year-old, they will say, that's not fair. Everybody knows, has some sense of conscience. Other people are restrained, not by conscience, but just by the threat of punishment. You know, um, we, our worship team, once a month, our worship team has a potluck dinner. We, we have, and you know, it's a great night when we're together and people bring their best food and we always ask Christina and Chandia to bring a pie. And she bakes the most fantastic pies. Just picture, just picture Christina and Chandia's blueberry pie, hot out of the oven, fresh crust. And she, like in the Norman Rockwell painting, puts it on the windowsill to cool. <laughs> Okay? And people are walking by. People are walking by. Why don't they steal the pie? Some people will steal the pie. But why do some people not steal the pie? Some people have a conscience, right? That's wrong to steal. I learned, I, you know, I don't want someone stealing from me. Okay, I guess I won't steal from her. It doesn't have to do with love for God, but they have a conscience. Other people, um, what, what do they have? It's the threat of punishment. Because maybe Elias has put a camera out there, a, a, you know, a device. And, and, it, and, and it, the, maybe the police are driving by down the street as I'm walking past that windowsill. And it's the threat of punishment. And so many people do not commit evil because they do not want to be punished. And it is a deterrent. The book of Romans teaches that God gave the state the sword in order to execute justice, right? So... There is common grace, restraint of sin, sometimes through conscience, sometimes through threat of punishment. 
And sometimes it's just because God arranges the circumstances so that uh, I can't do it. I happened to be walking down this side of the street rather than that side of the street. Knowing my heart, had I been walking down that, this side of the street right next to the pie. But you see, God arranged the circumstances. And, and, and so these are ways that God restrains. Now we are told, I think Maimonides was right that God arranged the circumstances so that the men of Gerar were impotent in that season in order to make the point that Abraham truly was the father of Isaac. But whatever it was, I don't know if it was conscience or if it was threat of punishment or, or what, God restrains evil by his common grace. Okay, are you with me on that? It's important to understand this as you understand the world in which we live. And third, common grace is the ability of fallen people to do what the theologians call civic good. And when they speak of civic good, they're speaking of those things which are good for this life only. Not spiritual good, not eternal good, but good things big and small that Christians and non-Christians alike might do that for other people. A father, many non-Christian fathers provide for their family. Many non-Christian philanthropists will build a hospital wing. These are good things, and people the world over do them. This is the ability of people to do good. Even Abimelech is a picture of someone who is willing to do good generously. Now, that's civic good. It doesn't win him brownie points for eternal life. It certainly won't save him. But God in His common grace moves humanity so that society endures. Why? We are told why. So that the world continues until the end as a theater for redemption, until Christ comes again to claim His church. Abimelech was a good king, even though he was a pagan Canaanite. You know, and I have to say, I think we would all have respected Abimelech had we lived there. He would have been a noble pagan in your eyes and in my eyes. He could have said, I don't care if Sarah is his wife, she's hot, and I'm keeping her because I'm the king. And he could have done that, but he didn't. But make no mistake, even in this text, we learn that common grace and those good things do not make us right for salvation. They don't save us. Doesn't forgive sins. And the point is driven home here in the text in verse 7 where God says to Abimelech, the good guy, you're going to die unless my prophet Abraham prays for you. And that's startling. Isn't it right there? That's startling. God is going to hear the prayer of one of his own children who has been very bad but he won't, he does, he does, God doesn't say to Abimelech, you pray so that you can live. God says, you need my prophet to pray for you. And at this brief moment, Abraham is both like and unlike Jesus Christ, the great prophet, you see. Abraham is not like Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the perfect a holy inter one who intercedes, who prays. But, but he needs an intercessor still, as good as he is. He still needs an intercessor so he doesn't die. And so do I. 
so that I, he ever lives above for me to intercede. Right? We sang that last week. Wow. So we see again, common grace doesn't save. Salvation comes through saving grace. But this is why unbelievers are often so good. Common grace. I hope you learned something today for your understanding of what's going on in the world. Now, this leads us to the second big question. Why are believers sometimes so bad? Hmm? And let's answer this question by looking more closely at Abraham's behavior. Because we've seen Abimelech's common grace goodness. The first thing that stands out about Abraham here, as I already said, is that he did it before, and he even hints that he may have done it at other times along the way. Back in chapter 12, he went to the promised land, and then he goes down into Egypt. And when Pharaoh saw Sarah, remember, she was only 70 then, and she was really smoking and he says, I got to have her. I want her. And, and Abraham says, okay, tell her you're my sister. And off uh, she goes. And God rebukes Abraham. And Abraham is humiliated, right? He is humiliated. He's put in his place for this. And he gets Sarah back. And then God blesses him in, with amazing grace. So he did it 20, and now 20 years later, and guess what? 20, over this past 20 years, he's had more encounters with God. Not, you know, it's not like he's more ignorant or he's forgotten. He has seen the holiness of God and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's seen, wow, God takes sin really seriously. He's had the special visitation. Whew, the special visitation of the Lord in his tent and had a meal with the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, has visited him and promised him a child. And still, he sins again and committed the same sin, and it was no little sin. And so he's taken to task by Abimelech. He's rebuked. I remember the first time I was rebuked by a non-Christian for my sin. I was in college, I was working on a construction crew, and, and I led a crew of young men. Uh, we were building townhouses, and I would w take my crew in between each subcontractor, and we would clean up after them to get it ready for the next subcontractor, all right? And um, the, the, the foreman hired two more guys one day. They show up, and these were two brothers, twins. They were six foot five, easily over 250 pounds, towering, towering, 100% muscle, filled with mischief. They both quit high school, didn't want anything to do with high school. They had to go to work for this company, and I was in charge of them. And it was, a, it, you know, on the one hand, they, they were great workers and good cleaners. And on the other hand, it was like chasing and herding cats, I'll tell you, keeping these guys in line. And, and I remember one day, the, the early morning meetings, you know, we're there at 5 to 7. We're all meeting. And, and I, I felt like I needed to establish my authority. And I said something to the whole crew that I thought was funny about those two guys. But it was really insulting to those two guys. 
And at noon, the foreman called me back to the trailer. And he said, Yenchko, the worst thing you can do to another man is to mess up his reputation. He didn't use that word. To mess up his reputation. You insulted those two brothers today. And maybe all they have is their reputation. And you told me you're a Christian. You told me you lead Bible studies. I'm not impressed. I don't think I'll come to your Bible study. This foreman was not a Christian. He was not a Christian. This Christian was rebuked by the non-Christian. This is what happened to, to Abraham here. And that's not the only time I've been rebuked. It's just that was the first, and that still stings my memory of that. I went and I apologized to the guys. Okay, But instead of Abraham saying, forgive me, I lied to you, I wronged you, I shamed my wife, and I dishonored my God. Instead, what does Abraham do? He makes excuses. And he starts to explain and rationalize it all away. I don't know if anybody else here can relate to that response, but that's what he starts to do. And he defends himself, and he digs deeper and deeper into a hole. Uh, and finally, Abimelech says to her, remember, I'm giving your brother... Wink, wink. You know, we, we laugh at this because I hope we're laughing at ourselves. Okay? We're seeing ourselves here. You're a, part of the, you're a member of this church. You're a part of our church family. You've been singing these songs, and yet do you continue to struggle with besetting sins? James Boyce says that Christian people often make deals with themselves early on in their life, and they make deals, and they say, you know, I'm going to live this way. Teenagers, you do this. You, you've probably already done this. Some of you older people, you made a, a deal with yourself when you were a teenager that this behavior was your precious behavior, and irrespective of what God says about it, I'm going to be this way. I'm going to talk this way. I'm going to watch this way. I'm going to live this way. And you made this kind of impulsive deal, and Boyce says these things travel with us until we bring them to God, until we bring them to light. And we need to have the rebuke come to us on these things. I don't know how God may want to deal with you. He dealt powerfully with Abraham. He certainly dealt with me that day in the construction trailer. How does he want to deal with you today? Will you listen? You know, just, again, I'm not here to shame you. I'm just saying you invite God to do business with you because that's what we do as a church. We invite God. We say, God, okay, come. Why does God still allow these things over time in our lives? Number one, to humble us. And I want to tell you something. These are the answers the Puritans gave in their years of pondering this difficult question. Humility is the fountain of, of, of the virtues of life. That's what the Puritans would say. Out of humility grows patience. 
concern for others, forbearance, kindness, self-control. And nothing humbles us more than seeing our own sin and weakness, really seeing it without the excuses. Who are the loveliest Christians you know? I'll tell you who they are. They are those who know their own need of a Savior. They are the, they, they are the most attractive Christians, aren't they? It's not the Christian who says, look at me in my superior holiness. Frankly, you might not find that all that attractive. But the loveliest Christians are those who are most aware of their sinfulness. The second reason is, that because, is because he wants to strengthen our faith in the conflict. And he, did, he will do that. Because the greatest conflict of your life, Bill Melcher notwithstanding, is not going to be with your wife or is not going to be with your husband, or is not going to be with your dad, or is not going to be with your child. The greatest conflict in your life is going to be with your sin. And in that conflict, if you are truly born again, if you are truly alive in Jesus Christ, then you are going to trust Jesus to be your captain. You're going to say, Jesus... You explain your lordship to me in the light of these temptations and impulses that seem to be so powerful in my life. And you're going to call out for the Holy Spirit. And you're going to say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Fill me, please, with your Holy Spirit. And you're going to take up the gospel weapons. The third reason is to assure us of our salvation. How do you know if you are truly born again. That's the old word. Some people in our culture don't like it, but it's Jesus' word in John chapter 3. Many people think they are Christians, and they are not. Jesus teaches that. Most terrifying, terrifying notion, isn't it? People who think they are Christians, but they are not. And I think the best way to know whether or not you are truly a Christian is the response you have to sin in your life. That is to say, it is a great indicator. There are other ways of knowing that you are a Christian. But when you are sick at heart over what you did to your husband or over what you said to your wife or how you treated your child, or how you dishonored God. When you are sick at heart over that sin, you will say with the Apostle Paul what Martin read for us today. Of the sinners in the world, I am the worst because I am the one I know. And Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I think that's the great evidence that you are a Christian. Finally, it is to glorify God's grace in your life. And now I'm going to make you, I'm going to encourage you, okay? You, you, this hasn't been the easiest sermon to listen to. This is a difficult chapter of the Bible to understand. But do you know what God calls Abraham after all of this? He calls him a prophet. <laughs> he still says, this is my man. This is mine. He is mine. And I'm going to use him. I'm going to hear his prayer. He's mine. And I love him. And I've made a covenant with him that will not be broken. 
And I am for him, and I am not against him. And you read the book of Romans. You read the book of Galatians. You read the book of Hebrews chapter 11, where they have the hall of fame of faith, and Abraham is listed there in a litany of God's honoring his child Abraham, and not once does he mention this sin. Why? Because in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. The old has passed away. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he cast your transgressions from you. This is amazing grace. Isn't it good to serve a God like that? You know, if five minutes ago you agreed, yes, God, we need to do business over this sin in my life. Right now, what you need to do is say, oh, God, I'm so glad you're my God. I'm so grateful that you're my Savior, that you're my King. Because in spite of my sin, Christ has set the love of the Father on me and on you. It's really good to serve a God like that. When I think about the way I treated those two young men and humiliated them on that day, I know I deserve to go to hell for the injury that I did to them. Make no mistake, in the face of a holy God, what would be the only just thing for him to do? But to create a smoldering cinder out of me. But instead, instead, there is grace. Grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. And he wants you to magnify and glorify him for the grace in your life. And I want you to do that. I want you to just be so thankful, so happy, so full of joy in knowing that in union with Jesus, he is for you and not against you. This is good news. Let's consider then the cross, the cross where Jesus died, the cross where justice and mercy kissed, the cross, the place where forgiveness and atonement was made, and where we live. Special grace, saving grace. Let's pray. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Oh, we thank you for our father Abraham. We pray for your rich uh, blessing on us as you richly blessed Abraham. We now understand a little more clearly, Lord, through my own weak preaching. We now understand the glory of the cross and how wonderful it is to be saved, to be forgiven before the face of a holy, holy, holy God. We praise you for your common grace to mankind. We thank you that you have sustained this world. But we pray that in the midst of this world that is sustained and restrained by you, we would be heralds, we would be ambassadors of your gospel, of your saving grace to the world. Lord, I suspect this is a new idea for some people. But I pray 
that you will open all our eyes to behold the wonders of your mercy and of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.